You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast that refuses to live in the past, except when it comes to my choice of music. I never think about the future, I just live for today. And if you want a ready answer, I've got nothing to say. So please don't bother talking to me, I'll just disappoint you. I'm quite content to sit right here with nothing to do Well, I'm not the singer that you used to know I used to be the guy that had some place to go But that was yesterday, girl Yesterday, girl Hello and welcome to another brain slug wearing episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Maynard, the greatest Green Lanterns ever to grace the. Wait, I did that before. It's hard to come up with new ones every time. Anyhow, Today we're going to be covering, again, two comics, one being the Green Lantern comic, number 42, which deals with the Predator and Deathstroke. Because you're not a 90s comic unless you have some ridiculous over-the-top anti-hero like Lobo or Deathstroke. Fun. We're also going to be dealing with a little bit of setup with what's going to be coming along in a couple of issues in Green Lantern, which is kind of interesting, and we're also going to deal with some awkwardness with Carol and something wrong with her biology. Well, not necessarily her biology, but Star Sapphires. Over in the Guy Carter comic, though, we're going to be dealing with one of the best storylines I think has ever been written for the character. It's the four-part story arc called Yesterday's Sins, written by the ever-awesome Chuck Dixon. This is basically, well, the year one story for Guy Carter and it's a really fun one, and it definitely fleshes out the character, gives a great backstory to him, and basically shows why he is who he is. This was one of the comics that I had really wanted to cover you know, when I started to do this show. I, I've mentioned that before, and I can't wait to get to it. So what I'm going to do is throw up a couple of promos for some awesome podcasts. Hope uh, that you all go check them out. Uh, of course, after you listen to my show. And then when we come back, we will get into Greenland number 42 and Guy Gardner number 11. I can't wait. So we'll see you on the other side and enjoy the promos. sense a disturbance in the force. You always sense a disturbance in the force. I don't like this. Oh! <laughs> 
really pissed me off. Star Wars Monthly Mondays, available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. said Mongo, didn't he? That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limpson.com And we're back. But before we get to the ever-so-awesome issue of Green Lantern number 42. Let's go ahead and check the Just One of the Guys email bag and see if we've got any letters this time around. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and this time out, we've got a couple letters from Scott Davis, our wonderful listener and emailer from the Great White North. Hey, Scott, thanks for writing in again. Uh, Scott writes again, or pff, Scott writes in to say, Sean, I just read issues one and two and listened to both of your episodes. Episode 2 was hilarious. Well, thank you, Scott. I appreciate that. You definitely pick out items of the comic that I don't pick up on when I read it. I'm hoping to catch up on the episodes, but I don't think I can keep up with your pace of one a week. I'll try to get there, though. I need to order the Guy Gardner series soon enough to keep up. Yeah, definitely, if you can, you know, suss out the Guy Gardner series, find them in 50-cent bins or whatever, uh, go check them out, because they're really a fun... They're a fun bunch of books, especially up to where we've been covering and for the next four issues. I think they're all just awesome. I think you'll really enjoy them. Uh, Scott continues, do you have a message board for people to write in? No, I've thought about talking with the guys at Forum for Geese for setting up a little board, but until I really feel like I've... I think I want to wait until I get to a certain point in the show, and then I think I'll probably have a little bit more leeway to have the need for a message board. Right now, I'm just happy with having people email in and answering the emails on the show and writing them back. So, until then, I'll just keep with the emails. Then, uh, Scott wrote in another letter uh, just a few minutes after that. Well, not really a few minutes after that, but a little while after that, uh, saying one comment about Episode 2. I assume the story was set on the East Coast and not the Pacific Northwest. Later in the story, there's a mention of hurricanes, which would be specific to the East Coast. This would make more sense than going through the Panama Canal, etc. Scott. 
And Scott makes a good point. I went back and looked at that issue, and if you don't remember, that was the issue where Guy Gardner found the tattooed man in New York City and had him chase Guy Gardner all the way to where Hal Jordan was, supposedly picking fruit, or actually not picking fruit. He was, at the time, he was uh, crab fishing. And my thought was, he's crab fishing, he's obviously in the Pacific Northwest, Guy Carter at the time was in New York City, and so they'd have to travel essentially across the entire Atlantic Ocean, through the Panama Canal, up the West Coast, uh, to uh, basically Alaska or the Pacific Northwest, which I thought was kind of odd geographically. It never really just popped into my mind that they could probably do crab fishing off the uh, coast of Maine or New England or whatever. I guess I just associated that more with lobster fishing, so it makes sense, and it would probably be a lot more reasonable than Guy having, or the tattooed man having to chase Guy halfway across the continent. (laughs) My bad. But thanks, Scott, for writing in, and thanks for putting that out. Uh, That's all the email we have for this time. I appreciate Scott for writing in. Really cool, and I'm glad to have Canadian listeners. That is always awesome. It's, I I, I just love it. Um, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and head on to the actual issue, or the actual comic in this show, Green Lantern number 42. Green Lantern 42 was cover dated late June 1993, with a release date on April 27th of 1993. The cover price was $1.25 US, $1.60 Canada, and 60 pence UK. Title this time was Death Times 2. Writer was Gerard Jones, penciler was M.D. Bright and Scott Collins, inker was Romeo Tangal, letterer Albert de Guzman, colorist Anthony Toland, assistant editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Saying that he has a gold bullet with Green Lantern's name on it, Deathstroke the Terminator faces down both our hero and the predator-possessed Aresia, or Predaresia as I'm going to call her. Chiel starts monologuing about stopping Deathstroke when he gets a glove slashed to the back from Predaresia. Ring blasting Preteresia away, Geo rushes to the cabin where Carol was staying, only to find it empty. Presumably, Carol taken by Deathstroke. Saying that they need to find Carol, Geo rebukes Preteresia and flies off, only to have her follow Geo's ring-powered trail. Meanwhile, Deathstroke is carrying his prey, Carol Ferris, over his shoulder through the woods. The masked assassin comes to an open area in the forest and uses a remote control to reveal a cloaked jet plane one that is oddly recognizable to Carol. Saying that he doesn't need to know who his client is, Deathstroke plays Expositional News Network, copyright Michael Bailey, 2009, all rights reserved, and tells a little about his client, the job which involved Hal Jordan, Olivia Reynolds, and Carol Ferris. The story is cut short by GL grabbing the jet with a ring construct. Deathstroke then launches a couple of missiles after GL, but our hero simply puts up an energy bubble and deflects their blast. But all of that was a distraction to allow Deathstroke and Carol to escape via jetpack. GL follows them down, only to get a chlorine gas grenade, followed by a jetpack-fueled sock to the kisser. Deathstroke takes the unconscious lantern down to the forest floor as he and the Predator begin again to fight over Carol Ferris. Cut to a mob scene of hot alien former Hal Jordan girlfriend, Aresia, waking to find she has her Green Lantern ring back. Excited, she flies off to find out where she is, and encounters weird images of the various races and gods of Maltus. 
they monologue about destruction and death and yada yada yada, freaking poor Aresia out. But in the real world, Hal Jordan is being cradled by Carol Ferris as Deathstroke and the Preteresia square off for a little fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved. Hal begs to send Carol away, but she claims that she'll be of more use here. There's a quick interlude of Malvaricia heading towards the Emerald Light as the battle rages on between the two foes. Preteresia has Deathstroke on the ropes when she's blasted by a beam of Emerald Energy. Hal stands defiant against Preteresia, but his next ring blast is simply consumed by the Talentaire, then leaps at our hero. But the jump is intercepted by Star Sapphire, who has reasserted herself to fight against the Preteresia. That, along with the mental will of Aresia fighting to break free, causes the Predator to lose control of the orange skid hottie and blow up real good. Crisis averted, retreated to a wrap-up, which includes a pregnant Star Sapphire, but not a pregnant Carol Ferris, whatever, Deathstroke told not to do his job of terminating, and the Predator inhabiting the body of a comics-collecting boy who's being bullied by some Max Landis-loving loser. The end. This is a really odd issue, especially with it dealing with the Predator and all the things that are going on with that. Add to that, uh, Deathstroke the Terminator coming in, uh, the whole thing with Star Sapphire being pregnant with the Predator's child, uh, I guess, and all that, and it just makes a really sort of wonky, weird issue. I know at the time, Len Wein had an idea for what the Predator was going to do, and supposedly Steve Englehart, when he came in, kind of changed that around. So it's kind of disappointing that we didn't get the true ending that Ween wanted to do, and it kind of feels like uh, Gerard Jones is trying to consolidate uh, the ideas that Ween and Englehart put together, and, or put out there, and try and put them together in some sort of cohesive, manageable fashion. Plus, we also get uh, a little bit of seeding for a story arc that's going to come up in the next couple issues, so that's actually kind of an interesting part of the story. But with that, let's go ahead and head on to notes. Starting with the cover, which is a very nice-looking cover, but a very busy one. And you've got Deathstroke the Terminator with his laser bow staff or whatever shooting at the Predator. And then you've got the Predator leaping with his claw things out. And you've got Hal lying on the ground. Looks like he just got kicked in the boing-boings. And you've got a nice cityscape in the background. Plus the... uh, Arrows, the giant arrows above the uh, characters pointing to them, basically telling you what, who these characters are, if you didn't know. It's it's a nice-looking cover, but it's very busy. A lot of stuff going on on there. Jumping ahead a bit in the uh, book to page 4, panel 7, we get Carol, who's being carried over the Predators, or not the Predators, Deathstroke's shoulder, recognizing the cloaked jet. Hence letting us know that Carol knows who's controlling Deathstroke or paying him off, but unfortunately no one else does. Now, I haven't looked ahead 
in the stories since I've read them, or I haven't reread them. I'm kind of just doing this issue by issue to kind of not really reacquaint myself with it, but just so I can get that sort of feeling of newness again. But I'm trying to remember if this story arc actually gets played out and whether we figure out who these people are, but it's it keeps getting seeded and seeded in the storyline, and I really can't remember if it actually pays off in the end. We'll have to see. On page 6, as Deathstroke is saying that he visited Olivia Reynolds in the hospital, either they forgot that any Olivia Reynolds is supposed to look like Ann Coulter, or this is an entirely different woman, because her lying in the bed, her face is all wrong, and she now has brunette hair. So I don't know if this is an artistic error, or if this was supposed to be someone else, or what it is, but this isn't Olivia Reynolds on this page. Pages 9 and 10, and as we get the mob flashback, or I guess sort of Aresia in her mental state, uh, we get her checking out a bunch of aliens and a bunch of, I guess, what are going to be determined to be gods of Maltus on pages 9 and 10. And essentially, it's set up for what's going to be coming up in the next couple of issues. There's going to be a story arc where these three different basically space cop groups are going to have to work together to fight off this from what I remember this race of gods or this race of omnipotent beings that are from the planet Maltus which is the planet where the uh, guardians and the controllers are from so we'll get to that in a couple of episodes Page 12 and 13, this is a really nice two-page splash of Deathstroke and the Predator, or Predaresia, fighting. It's the, the artwork of M.D. Bright has always impressed me, and he's got Predaresia in a sort of stylized pose, but it's not a ridiculous, overly sexualized uh, Catwoman-type pose, even though she, he, whatever, is leaping at her. It's not that kind of thing where he's trying to show butts and boob at the same time. It looks for a comic book character dressed in a black outfit with silver wings and claws. It looks normal. So, and Predator's in a sort of, you know, crouching tiger hidden dragon pose. So it's 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 a really dynamic look. It's a really dynamic piece of art and if you were fans of Deathstroke and the Predator, I could imagine you'd want to have a poster of this. Sure. Page 15, going back to the whole idea of they're using onomatopoeia in the book, I'm liking that. Unfortunately, this time, this is the second time in the book that they've used the word chow, this time to uh, denote the Deathstroke kicking the Predator. And kind of when I see the word chow, it kind of makes me hungry, I may have to go get something to eat after this. Moving ahead to page 18, panel 1, we get the uh, reveal why Carol wanted to stay around, because now she's manifested her star sapphire self to uh, help take out the Predator. So, thank goodness star sapphire's around. And she's in her uh, really freaky, big-headed, barbarian, queen, metal 90s outfit. So, yay for that, too. And then, speaking of uh, Star Sapphire again, on page 20, panel 4, we get the most... 
I guess the most realistic, but probably the most uncomfortable view of uh, Star Sapphire. As we see her in her sort of metal bikini thing with the uh, arm gauntlet and the weird hat and pregnant for really no discernible reason. Well, I guess they give it a reason. Carol says, uh, or Aresia looks at Carol, and, or not Carol, but at Star Sapphire and says, Then it's true. The Predator's secret is that I carry his child. Yes, too true. This is why the Predator was so desperate to remain in Carol's psyche, to protect this demonic fetus for whatever dark schemes he weaves against the Zamorans and Guardians. Although I never told him he had little to fear, even though it was his child, it's mine as well. And come good or evil, I will let nothing befall it. So basically, the Predator got Star Sapphire knocked up, and the child is going to become the Malthusian Antichrist or something. I don't get it. And of course, in the next panel, Star Sapphire disappears, and Carol remanifests, and of course, Carol's not pregnant. I don't know how that works, and I don't want to know. Then on page 21, we've got Deathstroke with the uh, drop on Green Lantern. He's about to kill him, but he gets a message from the mysterious billionaire who tells him not to. You know, I really, at this point in time, could care less who this mysterious billionaire is. I'm not all that interested in this plot. So, overall, not the greatest issue, especially with the weirdness with Carol being pregnant and basically the Predator being in it. So, it's not horrible, but uh, I'm hoping things turn around. You know, it, it needs to tick up in quality. But one thing that is definitely going to be a tick up in quality if not a giant leap up in quality, is the next issue of Guy Gardner, which we're going to cover after we play a few promos for some of my favorite podcasts on the internet. On May 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. Not true. That's impossible. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It it the it flame flames flames on the side of my face, breathing breathless. Heaving breaths. Heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it! He likes it! Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. 
If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy! Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky. Speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The new 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libsyn.com. Hello, boys and girls. It's your dear old Uncle Joker. We've got an internet access here in Arkham, so I'm doing a little browsing. Hmm, lolcats, lolcats, porn, lolcats. What's this? Bailey's Batman Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast devoted to everything Dark Knight Detective. Well, Michael Bailey, where's Bailey's Joker Podcast, eh? We'll see about that. Harley! Get our things! We're going to Georgia! <laughs> hey everyone, Michael Bailey here asking you to check out my bi-weekly internet radio show, Bailey's Batman Podcast. Or at least I'm asking you to check it out while you still can, until the Joker shows up on my doorstep. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a hodgepodge-type show where I discuss all aspects of the Dark Knight's history. Comics, movies, animation, even trading cards and action figures. Everything Batman-related is fair game, and yes, that does include the villains, which includes the Joker, so he won't kill me. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.baileysbatmanpodcast.com. The site also has links to the iTunes page, the RSS feed, my Twitter handle if you're into the social media thing, and the Bailey's Batman Podcast Facebook page. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Connection, which you can find at batmanpodcastconnection.wordpress.com. I really hope that's the UPS guy. Why can't I have Batman in my basement? And we're back. And I am ready, incredibly ready, to get into this issue of Guy Gardner number 11, which was cover dated August 1993 with a release date on June 1st, 1993. Cover price was $1.25 US, $1.60 Canada, and 60 p UK. The title this time around was Back in the Days. Writer was Chuck Dixon... Woo! Penciler, Joe Staten, inker Terry Beatty, letterer Albert Guzman, Keller, Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Baganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. The story opens with Green Lantern Graf Torin investigating an unusual spaceship that has entered his sector. Not suspecting trouble, the GL approaches the ship and gets blasted with a yellow energy beam for his trouble. The creepy aliens beam him aboard their ship take his ring and begin to presumably do some what abducting aliens do best. But before I relate a tale of backdoor probing, let's talk about the person who this issue was 
really about. Guy Gardner. On the way to a local benefit for a children's hospital, Guy and General Glory run afoul of some Cobra goons who are trying to rob the Federal Reserve. The duo are making quick work of the villains, while in space, the creepy aliens from the opening are watching Guy with great interest. One alien says they were supposed to capture the Green Lantern of this sector, one called Jordan. But another says that Guy is more powerful, and would be better suited for their needs. The first alien asks why one would defy the hive mind, and the second answers with a thrust of his stinger into the other one's eye. Yuck. Back on Earth, Guy is showing off by using his ring to lift up the Cobra tank, while General Glory chides Guy's antics. Guy tells the star-spangled hero to calm down, but not before he gets caught in a displacement beam, zapping in from the combat zone and dropping the tank, nearly crushing the general and two police officers. Guy then reappears on a ship 60 million miles from Earth, surrounded by the weird aliens who kidnapped Graf. But Guy is in no mood for experimental probing, and the little fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, breaks out. The battle is short, though, as one of the aliens jabs Guy with a tentacle needle, and Guy slips into unconsciousness, seeing the body of Hal Jordan laying on an alien operating table as he passes out. Some time has passed, and Guy awakes to a room filled with captured Green Lanterns, including Graf Torin. Graf tells Guy that the aliens who captured him are called the Draw, and up until now, they've only been interested in capturing Green Lanterns. Guy wonders how they can escape, and the lanterns say that is impossible. Guy begs to differ, saying that the Justice League will be scouring space for him. The lanterns say that that won't be the case, though, since soon Guy will be replicated and his double will be sent back to Earth. And with that, the Drawl enter the cell to take Guy for some probing. Uh, of the mental kind, thankfully. Guy puts up a fight, only to get another zap to the back of his head and dragged to the science chamber. Guy then wakes up in time just to see his replicated self, as the draw plays a mental face hugger on his chest, which makes things go all grateful dead bad acid trip. Suddenly, Guy wakes up as a young kid in Baltimore. His portly mother comes upstairs to wake him and let him know that his dad is in another one of his moods. Guy heads downstairs and sees his father staring outside, smoke from a lucky strike wafting around his head. Grumbling that some foreigners are moving in next door, Raleigh Gardner turns his anger to Guy, who has woken up late for school. At breakfast, Raleigh rebukes Guy for his trademark bowl haircut. Guy says it's like the haircut of General Glory's sidekick, and that it's cool. Raleigh retorts with a statement of Guy would wear an earring if someone told him it was cool. And as a nervous guy reaches for the sugar to put on his cereal, he accidentally spills his orange juice on his father's morning edition of the paper. This sets Raleigh into a rage, and he unleashes on Guy, mercilessly smacking Guy with the newspaper, as Guy's bomb turns a blind eye. Of course, the violent beating is no reason to be late for school, which is just as great a humiliation as Guy must walk past the numerous accolades of his brother, Mace. Thinking that the day can't get worse, Guy gets caught for being late to class, making him end up in the principal's office and assuring another beating once he gets home. Exhausted, Guy falls asleep, only to wake back up in the cell with the other lanterns. They tell Guy that the replication process is extensive, and it would be best for Guy not to resist. In true Guy fashion, he shows his opposition to the proposal by punching the f*** out of the lantern. 
saying that, much like Baby, no one puts Guy in a corner. Guy hatches a plan to escape, and offers the Green Lanterns the opportunity to tag along with him, or let him do this on his own. You know, I don't know if I mentioned it before this particular point in time, but this is one of the main reasons for me doing this show. Chuck Dixon, writer extraordinaire, is putting pen to paper and writing my favorite character, and he's shading in his backstory as well as weaving in a tale of intergalactic kidnapping, uh, Green Lanterns being uh, used for different nefarious purposes. I'm loving it. Uh, This also was meant to be akin to the year one story we got for Batman, and sort of a primer story like a Man of Steel miniseries that we got for Superman. Granted, it's not regarded as highly as those, and nor do I think it actually should be, but it is that it is nice that they're actually getting an excellent writer in Chuck Dixon to come in and kind of flesh in the backstory for Guy Gardner as they did for those other characters. Yes, Superman and Batman are the forefront of DC's universe, but I'm glad that they're actually giving a little homage or a little uh, lip service to uh, the secondary characters, Guy Gardner being one of them. And having Chuck Dixon write the story is perhaps the best thing that they could have done. Plus, it's really neat that the seeds that were hinted at in previous stories, mainly that Guy was from Baltimore, that he had a problem with his parents and everything, all those seeds that were hinted at in earlier stories are now finally coming to fruition. So it's all culminating into just a really wonderful tale about a very underrated hero. Well, at the time he wasn't underrated, at the time he was pretty popular, but nowadays his place in the Green Lantern Corps, his place in comic bookdom, is pretty much relegated to second stringer. But going on with the issue, we'll start with the cover. Uh, it's a wonderfully simple cover. With uh, On the left side, we've got Guy in his football uniform, and and the other three-fourths of the page is just completely black, except for the image of Guy's dad, Raleigh, with a belt looming over Guy, and Guy cowering with his hands over his head, and a couple of General Glory comic books in there as Raleigh decides to give Guy a horrible beating. It's neat because the two are silhouetted against this black background, and they're only surrounded by a sort of yellow light, so it gives this idea that the two characters are coming out of darkness, that they're either metaphorically coming out of Guy's memory, or the image is just so horrific and gruesome that they've set it against this black background to sort of enhance the the darkness that's uh, being portrayed in the image. It's really nice, really good artwork for Staten, and Staten also does a very good child character. Young Guy looks like a young guy. He doesn't look like a shrunk-down version of him. He looks like a child. His proportions are right. It doesn't look like they just did a 50% reduction of the character of Guy Gardner and left it at that. It's a credit to Staten's artwork, and I'm really enjoying it. Really a simple but powerful cover, and we're going to see more like this over the next three or four issues page one of the book, we get a really nice image of the new Green Lantern, Graf Torin, as he's flying out through there. He's got a really dynamic look. He looks a bit Mongolian with his very his very sort of Asian look, and I think what really does it is the sort of 
not really Fu Manchu, but the pointed mustache that he has. It's a nice dynamic look. Also, this is the first appearance, as far as I can tell, of Graf, as well as the other Green Lanterns in this book. In fact, even though I'm not covering, or I'm not really reading up on the new 52 Green Lantern stuff, these Green Lanterns had carried on all the way through to almost the uh, new 52 reboot. So Graf, RRU28, or whatever his name is, uh, Vivix, all these Lanterns are still members of the Corps and still going, as far as I know. So it's kind of cool that we're getting the introduction of these you know, long-running Green Lanterns in a non-Green Lantern book. Again, it's a testimony to uh, how awesome a character Guy is. Or maybe not. It could be. Page 4, we get our first look at the aliens, and they're really a creepy and a unique design from Joe Staten. They're kind of crab-like, except uh, where the crabs have... Well, I guess more lobster-like, but they have a long sort of spike tail, and on the other side, they've got this giant, enormous eyeball. Plus, they've got loads of hentai tentacles with little spiky things on them. It's a really cool design. Um, Plus, on the same page, we also get the idea of, or the plan that the aliens are going to be doing, which, whatever it is, they are capturing Green Lanterns, replicating them, and sending them off to uh, defend their own sectors. Could be a sort of invasion thing, uh, but obviously they're using these brain slugs, which we'll get to later, to uh, replicate their memories so that the duplicates are pretty much indistinguishable from the originals. Page 5, as Guy and General Glory are fighting the Cobra forces, and Cobra with a K, not... G.I. Joe Cobra stuff. Uh, Guy mentions that General Glory and he were going to go to a Stephen Skull movie, and uh, Guy mentions, does that clown have an ego or what? Which I find kind of odd, as Guy isn't one person who seems to have a bit of an ego. Mr. Kettle, meet Mr. Pot. I'd like you to notice that he is black. Then on page 6, panel 3, we get the aliens describing Guy as being more powerful than Hal Jordan. In fact, they say this yellow one is more powerful. Scanners read power to a 9 factor. So, obviously these aliens are perhaps the smartest aliens and the most sensible ones in the known universe. In my humble opinion. Page 7, panel 4. Now, if you thought these weird, tentacled, bug-eyed aliens couldn't get any ickier... In order to kill another one, one alien turns around and opens up, I guess it's back end, and has a giant stinger on his butt. And he impales it through another alien's eye and tells it to uh, join the ghost hive. So, obviously these drawl are hive-like aliens, but they're just weird, squishy, tentacled, eyeball, stingered, Bugs and they're just really creepy as all get out. Kudos to Joe Staten for coming up with perhaps some of the most horrific aliens I've seen in a long time. Oddly enough, on page 8, panel 3, the aliens get even weirder because they uh, 
say that they're targeting in on Guy at uh, Sector ZZ. So maybe the uh, aliens are actually Canadian. Or or I guess they could be British. You never know. The whole ZZ thing, I don't get. Of course, there's probably dozens of American dialectic... Is that even a word? I don't think so. Uh, forms of American dialect that I'm certain uh, people in Canada and the UK and wherever else are like, what the hell are they talking about? Like us dropping the U from words like humor. Then, of course, we get more alien ickiness on page 10, panel 4. They've got big, spiky hentai tentacles. So, obviously, maybe Staten was watching some uh, Dominion tank police or... I don't know what kind of weird Japanese anime stuff they're checking out. Bunch of spiky, tentacled freakiness. Uh. Then on page 12, panel 1, we get our actual introduction to all the Green Lanterns that have been captured. We get Gapak, uh, spelled G-P-A-A-K, which is kind of a weird, not really gelatinous, but a sort of blob-like alien Green Lantern. We've got Graftorin, which I described. We've got Bivix, which is uh, essentially a little compy, if you know what I'm talking about, from uh, Jurassic Park. It looks kind of like a uh, bipedal alligator, Green Lantern. Uh, a cute little thing. Then we get uh, Vaz, which is essentially a sort of hunchback, uh, Chewbacca-type um, Sasquatch-looking Green Lantern with a uh, very long claws on his hand. And finally we get, uh, and I misspoke his name initially, it's RRU92, which is either, I'm assuming he's a mechanic, or, or a mechanoid, or a robot, whatever you want to call him, rather than being a guy in an armored suit. Uh, and oddly enough, it's amazing that this is the origin of these characters, this is where these characters first came from, and they're still going, assumably, all the way up to the pre-52 Greenlander books. I'm really, again, I'm just really impressed that Staten and Dixon were able to come up to these characters, and they had such long lives after them. In fact, um, a lot of them are really highly regarded. So, kudos to Dixon. There you go. And then, of course, on the same page, we get the uh, name of the weird bug-eyed aliens in panel 2, and they're given the name the Drawl. Now, Unfortunately, the drawl are relegated simply to this book. As far as I can tell in my research, they've never been used in any other way, shape, or form in the DC Universe. And that's really sad to me, because they're an interesting character, they're an interesting group of aliens, it's a really good design, and unfortunately, it was just used for this book. I would really like it... And I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I'd like it if, you know, current DC continuity would come back and take a look at this stuff and maybe integrate this stuff. Since the Green Lanterns were used in other stories, why weren't these alien antagonists used? It makes no sense to me. Page 13, panel 3, we get a nice comedy beat in the middle of the story with a shot of just how concerned the Justice League is about Guy's disappearance, as we see... Wonder Woman standing around, looking out the window, while Martian Man Hunter walks by, and Boo Beetle sits with his legs kicked up, asking, who took the TV guide? So, 
there's your uh, Justice League. Always concerned about Guy. Moving along a bit to page 17, we get an image of Guy waking up in his room, and Guy's in typical kid pajamas with, you know, cowboy-type stuff on there. His room's very... I want to say 1970s, maybe uh, late 1960s, because he's got a uh, Apollo space shuttle a model hanging from the uh, ceiling. Plus, he's got posters of General Glory all over the place, and even General Glory copics, which he needs to bag. Seriously, don't don't leave that stuff lying around. It'll just it'll go down in value. Page 18, we're finally introduced to Guy's parents. His mom, who's really not named in this book yet, is a very sort of martly... Well, she's kind of a chunky older lady and a typical uh, striped dress and a purple sweater. She's obviously one of those stay-at-home moms that really didn't care that much about Guy. And as we're introduced to Guy's dad, you kind of imagine that he's a dock worker or he works in manufacturing at the time. And he's an older guy with a receding hairline and a thin mustache and a very sort of stocky build. And he's puffing on a cigarette, a lucky strike, which if you know Buffy, someone smoking a cigarette, they're obviously bad. And... He's uh, looking out the window in panel four, and I guess there's some people moving in, and he's saying, uh, Jens sold his place to some kind of foreigners. What's he care, right? He moved to Townsend, for cripe's sake. Sold it to some damned Greeks or something. And I hate to think this. I'm wondering, you know, because I understand putting Greeks in there, maybe there was a big Greek community and a bunch of... uh, prejudice towards the Greek community in Baltimore, I really couldn't say, but I'm wondering if there wasn't another racial epithet that Dixon may have wanted to put in there about certain people moving in next door just to make Raleigh an even more horrible character. I'm hoping I'm just reading into that, but I think they're trying to portray him in in the easiest possible manner of being a complete utter racist bastard, and they're doing a good job at it. Page 19, again, we get a really good image of Guy as a kid. Like I said before, Staten draws him as a kid. He doesn't draw a shrunk-down image of Guy, and I'm really liking that in the book. Plus, here on panel 6, we get an excellent way to show Guy's beating. Now, I'm not saying that beatings are excellent. This is a horrific thing going on to Guy, and his dad is an obvious, complete, horrible person. But in here, we get an image that I don't think would have been used in modern comics. We get a shot from uh, from basically the window of the apartment, looking in, and what we see is in the foreground, Guy's mom ignoring what's going on behind her and just sitting there and drinking her coffee as you see Raleigh with his fist holding the balled-up newspaper just getting ready to wail on Guy. And it's all done in the background, and it's it's done subtly, but from the image you can tell that he's taking his anger out on Guy. And 
thankfully it's not showing him hitting guy, but the image is striking enough to know for viewers to know that there is something horrible going on. Really dynamic work again from Staten. Um, I'm going to keep gushing. Why not? Then on page 20, panel 3, as Guy walks into the uh, high school or his school, we get introduced to uh, Guy's older brother, Mace, which we'll be learning a bit about in the next couple of books. Mace is basically the brother who can do no wrong, while Guy is the brother who does everything wrong. Mace, you know, is the football star, he's the team hero, his parents love him, and Guy definitely resents him, and there'll be more about his character in coming books. Uh, page 21, panels 2 through 5, here's another great example of, sh- of Staten differentiating between the youth and adult Guy. Uh, basically, this is Guy falling asleep at the principal's office and then waking up on the alien spaceship. And in one panel, basically panel two, you can see Guy as a kid. And his nose is a bit more uh, linear. His uh, cheekbones aren't as sunken in and uh, defined. And uh, his eyebrows are, well, his eyebrows are about the same. But he looks like a child in this issue. Uh, Right below it on panel five, it's the same sort of profile shot. But you can see Guy's nose is a bit more curved. Looks like he's had some fights and maybe even had his nose broken. His chin's a bit more pronounced. It's just another, I'm going to keep saying it, it's another great example of Staten being able to differentiate between an adult figure and a child figure. Far too many artists I hear today can't get kids right. Uh, I guess I'm looking at you, uh, Frank Quitley. But uh, this is good. Staten is awesome at doing it, and it comes as no surprise to me because I think Staten is a, an exceptional artist. Then finally, on page 22, panel 2, we get Guy showing that he is the manliest man around once again as he decides to punch a Green Lantern that is a robot. Punches a robot right in the face and knocks him out. How macho is that? Plus, he's got some great dialogue here. He's got, the guy says, I may be bullheaded and arrogant and overconfident and unrealistic, but those are my good points. And I'm breaking out of this sci-fi hamster cage even if I gotta die to do it. And if any of you candy butts want to call yourselves Lannons, you can tag along. Otherwise, Guy Gardner walks alone. Perfect dialogue. Dixon gets the character as much, if not more so, than Gerard Jones did. Uh, the series has had great writers on it for since its beginning, and I am so looking forward to how this is going to be going on. Amazing stuff. I, I, I just, words can't say. But I'm going to have to gather my words up to uh, comment about the wonderful ads that they have in comic books in the 1990s. So let's go and take a trip down memory lane and see what they have to sell to us. On the front end side cover, they get the Make a Day for Six Flags ad, which uh, is featuring the Looney Tunes characters, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Tweety Bird, and the Tasmanian Devil, and they're uh, showing the various Six Flag parks uh, coming from Los Angeles all the way up to New York. Again, Six Flags, good for thrill rides, but it's no Disneyland. 
then a few pages in, we get the uh, image of or the poster for the movie Meteor Man, which starred Robin Townsend. Uh, it was titled A Superhero for the 90s. It was a it was essentially a very ethnically diverse uh, comic book movie trying to introduce a character called Meteor Man. Uh, Robert Townsend, in general, is a pretty funny guy, and he's got a pretty good bevy of uh, black actors here. He's got uh, uh, what Marla Gibbs, Eddie Griffin, Robert Guillaume, James Earl Jones, Bill Cosby, another bad creation, Big Daddy Kane, Simbad, and Luther Vandross. Now, I will admit, I haven't seen Meteor Man, but I do remember... Oh, what did he... He didn't do I'm Gonna Get You Sucker. What did he do... One second. Okay, back from a quick check of IMTB. He did this movie called Hollywood Shuffle, was a, which was a great sort of takeoff or sort of uh, razz at the whole Hollywood ideal. You know, how Hollywood works. It was a funny movie. I'm going to make the assumption that Meteor Man was a funny movie as well. Next page, we get the ad for Barg's Root Beer, or Bark's Root Beer, and they uh, have the uh, tattoos that you can the temporary tattoos that you can put on your body, so there was that again. Then a few pages in, holy cow, you get the ad for the grand opening of the second Mile High Comics Megastore uh, in Anaheim, California, and appearing at the uh, grand opening would be Rob Liefeld and Jim Shooter. And (laughs) I'm not going to say anything disparaging about Rob Liefeld. He's an artist that is very controversial. But this image of Rob Liefeld here is essentially the image of, oh, pretty much any high school photograph that you'd find in a yearbook uh, from essentially, oh, 1985 till about 1992. <laughs> very, it's not what I expected Rob Liefeld to look like. Jim Shooter, however, Looks like Jim Shooter might have been going through his uh, his addiction phase because he looks kind of well. He looks like a strung out mafioso. Not saying anything about him, but just the way he appears. Middle of the book, we get the uh, same ad we did last time: the two-page splash for Batman Returns. Uh, nice artwork, nice Catwoman. Of course, I'm kind of partial to the Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman. Uh, The ETM uh, comics page has uh, the comics of the day and their prices. Uh, Not really hot comics, but they've got bestsellers, uh, some of them running 25 bucks. The Infinity Gauntlet trade running 25 bucks. Uh, Image books are large and in charge. Not seeing anything for ridiculous prices right now. The main ones that they're displaying are the Batman ones, which is Obviously, going through the whole Knight's Quest thing, the image they have there is Asbats in his ridiculous armor and his spiky gloves of death, looking at a very red-skied Gotham with the uh, bat signal shining up above them. Uh, the other big comics that they're promoting are, of course, X-Men and uh, Superman, which seems to be going through a sort of renaissance, I guess, with the uh, return of Superman. I wonder if anyone ever covers anything about that. The uh, DC Universe uh, has a sort of comedic take on it, with uh, Ruben Diaz doing the uh, notes for it. And they give a uh, gripe line, which is essentially a gripe line, which is the upcoming comic books uh, 
for the DC Universe over the next month, except this time it's uh, kind of comedic titles, like Legion 2099, uh, Dragman, uh, Chainsmoker War, Lobo Sigma, which it says, who cares what it is, you'll buy it anyway, uh, Superman number 76, Oh, uh, not Superman, Superb Man number 75, where Superb Man dies again. Hey, we could use more money. Uh, Batman vs. Lobo, and I say, like you're not going to buy this one. Uh, Defective Comics, uh, The Death of Superb Man trade paperback, and Guy Gardner, who says he's mean, he's deadly, he works for a minimum wage, and has a work visa. So, there you go. Thank you, DC. The Guy Talk page has the typical notes praising Guy's former issues, with one, one in particular from Libby Singleton, who uh, is basically gushing over Guy. Uh, she's quite enamored with the character, and as a red-blooded female, I can imagine most red-blooded females would be all hot in the pants for Guy. Maybe I'm wrong there. Finally, the back inside cover, in fact, it's a two-page advertisement for Mario's greatest adventure yet. Bowser has grabbed Mario, and Mario needs you now. It's for the Super Nintendo game Mario is Missing, which basically has Luigi searching for Mario. It's a, uh, if I recall, it's a sort of Carmen Sandiego type game, and from what I remember, it is perhaps one of the worst, most hated, most down-looked-upon Mario games out there don't know why, personally, because I didn't play it, but maybe the uh, bad word of mouth at the time kind of uh, shied me away from looking at it. Then, of course, we get to the game that I think pretty much defines the 90s. On the back outside cover, we get all eight awesome fighting characters in Raiden, Sub-Zero, Liu Kang, Johnny Cage, Sonya Blade, Kano, Goro, and Scorpion in the video game Mortal Kombat coming to leading video game systems in September of 1993. Yes, Mortal Kombat was really the game changer for basically the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis. I remember playing the heck out of that game, and I remember specifically the Genesis one, because you could enter a cheat code, which would allow you to do all the fatality moves and do them in a horrible, bloody manner. So that was always awesome. A fun game and a pretty good ad for it. Uh, the graphics look pretty good here, so nice going. But that finishes up the issue. Uh, again, as usual, neither of these have been reprinted, but maybe uh, DC is going to be working with Comixology, and they'll be releasing these in digital format sooner or later. But until they do that, we're just going to have to search out the uh, back issue bins. That, again, does it for this issue. Next week, we're going to be covering another couple of issues of Green Lantern and Guy Gardner. One of them is going to be really awesome, because it's a continuation of the Yesterday Sin storyline, and one of them is going to be dealing with Itty, this weird giant spore thing from outer space, and his weird giant spore thing mate. And Hal's going to become basically a Super Saiyan green entity thing. Yeah, uh, 
not issue 37 bad, but... Uh, thank goodness Guy Gardner's there to save us all. But that does it for this week. Thank you, everyone, for writing in. Thank you, everyone, for downloading and listening. I appreciate you all doing that. And come on back next week. God, I sound like I'm introducing the grand old Opry. <laughs> come back next week for another episode of Just One of the Guys. I'll be here. Make sure you are, too. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly fire. The website address can, for the show can be found at just one of the guys, one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scan for the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting on. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, and be sure to leave a review there. Love to read it on the next show. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account on Facebook. But if you got enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to water around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was The Smithereens with the song Yesterday Girl off their album Lemon. As usual, I'd love for you guys to go buy this album because it's a great one. Smithereens are an awesome band. But primarily, I'd love for you to go to Amazon.com through the Two True Freaks website. If you go to www.twotruefreaks.lipson.com and click the Amazon banner at the top of the page, when you go to Amazon and purchase either the Smithereens album download the song or download the album itself, you'll be giving a small amount of money back to the Two True Freaks podcast, making sure that their shows stay on the air. So, Christmas coming around, you want to buy something? Make sure if you're buying it through Amazon that you go through Two True Freaks.